gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. It's uh, Christmas Eve Eve, and um, I just felt like I should catch up since I've been gone and like uh, want to get back onto schedule. And so I don't have any burning agenda here, but I figure um, uh, we could do something, a, a quick, short solo one. Uh, thanks, first of all, for all the great feedback about, uh, well, my wife. Um, um, it's uh, lots of people commenting on how giggly I get, um, including Adam, who put it in the subtitle. Um, it's true. I get a little giggly about my wife. Um, I still do. I love her. And, um, um, and I'm still, you know, astonished that she chose to marry me. Um, as are lots of people anyway. Uh, but we had some questions about all that. Um, what, uh, some people didn't know about the title nine stuff. Um, uh, Jessica, when I first met Jessica, she, I want to get this chronology, right? Um, she was at the philanthropy at philanthropy magazine. Um, but then she went to be a, um, uh, to work at, uh, to do research at, for the, I believe it was at the independent women's forum, um, and about title nine. And she turned that into a book, um, called tilting the playing field. And, you know, these days title nine is all wrapped up in stuff in the classroom and stuff, um, about transgender things and all that kind of thing. Um, but back in the day when she was working on it, the reason why it was called Tilting the Playing Field is that um, Title IX was responsible, or the implementation of Title IX under the Clinton administration, which was in many ways continued by the Bush administration, resulted in um, the mass shuttering of lots of men's sports teams because the um, the pretext or the stated rationale, which I don't believe was the actual rationale in many cases, was that you needed as many, um, you need numerical equivalency um, of opportunities between, uh, in sports for both male and female students. And, um, and so uh, sports like baseball, men's wrestling in particular, um, really just, they got shut down because um, the way you could get to parity between men and women was to offer fewer opportunities to men. Um, and it gets complicated. Uh, you know, but part of, part of the problem was, was that a lot of female students didn't want to participate in sports in the numbers, you know, that, that men do. Women were um, less likely to sit on the bench, that kind of thing. They were interested in different sports. And, at a lot of schools, they couldn't shut down basketball or football because those were profitable. Um, so they shut down the more obscure things like, again, baseball, wrestling, crew, that kind of thing. And anyway, my wife wrote the sort of definitive critical book about it. And um, the sort of, and, and a lot of people attacked her for it and a lot of people ridiculed her for it. And, um, the Women's Sports Foundation considered, you know, my wife public enemy number one and all those um, folks. And um, that's what my wife was referring to about the sort of like, um, you know, the stigma that came from it. Um, because, you know, to question back then to question the boosterism and excitement about women playing in sports. Um, even though my wife is wildly in favor of women playing in sports, she played, you know, basketball was huge for her in high school. Um, and, you know, she would love to coach, um, you know, uh, women's basketball. She was a, um, um, she was very into my daughter's sports stuff. Um, anyway, uh, but, you know, 
probably got her on the wrong side of uh, a lot of folks in the Bush administration because Bush had two daughters and he thought it was great that they played soccer and yada, yada, yada. And like, again, it was one of these things where the, uh, the PR of a public policy was in direct conflict with the reality of the policy. And, um, a lot of it had to do with, you know, a, a certain strain of feminism, uh, activists that wanted to get rid of college football. I, ironically, I am actually in favor <laughs> or at least very sympathetic to the idea of doing something about, uh, men's about college football and, and basketball. Um, I want the games to still be played, but like the idea that somehow, you know, it's sort of like, sort of like, you know, uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, you know, those things don't automatically in your mind make sense to go together. Um, and similarly, I, I think the idea that like, um, sports is at this point, you know, huge profit making sports where the coaches are making millions of dollars a year, million dollars a year. Um, and the players are, um, you know, I, I think, you know, getting exploited um, and getting, in many cases, um, subpar education so they could stay playing and all that kind of stuff. I think that whole, that whole situation doesn't make a lot of intuitive or rational sense. Um, if you want to have a minor league um, for basketball and football, that makes sense. I understand people love college football. But anyway, I think there's some, there's, there, there, there are, um, there are real problems with the sort of the system that we've fallen into. Um, and it's not even just the division one stuff. I mean, if you, if you have kids of college age, you know, or you followed that, like that what was that varsity blue, the thing where people were cheating to, you know, Photoshopping pictures of their kid on the water polo team to get them into Stanford or whatever. There's, um, there's a lot of. Uh, distortion effect that comes from even division three um, sports that I think is not necessarily in the best interests of higher education or higher or those institutions or the students. But anyway, that's just, that's a topic for another time. And I know that people are very passionate about this and I am not. So take it or leave it. I don't really care. So what else? Um, oh, a bunch of people asked, so what, what, why did, you know, what prompted my dad, my, my dad, my uh, father-in-law to uh, escape the communists, you know, when he was a teenager and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'll leave it to Jess when she writes the book to get the fuller story. But I think the gist of it is, is that um, he got in trouble in school. He was, um, um, he was, he was, he was not good at being a good little communist. and. Um, and he got some sort of black mark against him on his academic record um, or on his, on his, like literally his permanent record, right? Because if there's one group of people who really do believe in permanent records, it's communists. And, um, and it meant that I think it meant that he couldn't go to university. And for him, who was very, for, for, for Paul, Vlad, um, who's a very smart guy. Um, he kind of felt like, okay, he's, He's already been unpersoned as a teenager. There's no future for him. And, um, and the country was not a place. It was not a hospitable place to begin with. You know, he was not a fan of communism, um, that he made the call, but I, I, I know there are more details to it. And I know that there's, um, um, more stuff to uncover. Um, Anyway, all right, so let's just talk about the politics stuff. I can't remember what the other questions were, but they'll come out in the fullness of time. Um, I watched the Zelensky speech. Uh, I'm a fan of Zelensky. I don't, I don't, I really don't understand how you can't admire, how people can not admire him. Um, I think you can, um, I think there is room for people to disagree with American policy on Ukraine. I think there is room uh, for reasonable people to um, have different interpretations of Ukrainian and Russian history, even though at times I passionately disagree with some of those people. Um, 
But this determination to turn Zelensky into a bad guy, a corrupt guy, um, a clown or a fool, um, or as Donald Trump Jr. said, no doubt from behind a mountain of cocaine, um, um, that he was a welfare queen, um, is, is just grotesque. It's, it's just straight up water carrying for Putin. Um, it's really, really stupid. Um, and, um, you know, like, you know, like my friend, Michael Brennan Doherty, he disagrees with, you know, uh, supporting Ukraine and all of this. And he thinks NATO, you know, invited all of this. I think he's really wrong on all of that, but he's, but Michael's an honorable guy who has an honorable, uh, disagreement. Um, and he doesn't have, it doesn't feel compelled to defend Putin who, you know, Michael, you know, sees as well as anybody is an evil guy and a murderer. Um, and at least I haven't seen him do anything like, you know, this sort of juvenile mocking of, of Zelensky. I mean, this is a guy who's given every opportunity to do what a lot of corrupt leaders would have done, which is flee the country. And he said, no, um, you know, he said, I don't need a ride. I need ammo. And he has, um, handled the, this, the brutalization of his country, the invasion of his country, um, superbly. And, um, you can say it's not in our interest to give them, you know, the kitchen sink. And that's an argument worth having. Uh, but like you don't have to turn him into, um, a figure of ridicule while giving Putin a pass when Putin is really overseeing, you know, among the most egregious, um, atrocities, um, campaigns of atrocity uh, in our lifetimes, um, certainly in a uh, advanced modern um, country, right? I mean, uh, I mean, Russia is more backward and it is more backward than like say the EU or the United States and all that kind of stuff. But it's a, you know, it's a modern country. Um, we're not talking about, um, uh, you know, inter-ethnic tribal conflict um, in some third world country. Um, this is a guy um, with an educated population um, embracing the, I, you know, policies of rape. I mean, literally rape. Rape is countenance. They're actually, they just passed a law saying that uh, no soldier um, who essentially commits an atrocity uh, in defense in the war against Ukraine can be prosecuted for it. Um, they have, they're finding every day more mass graves. You know, it, it, maybe it's because I'm so addicted to following this stuff and I listen to the, you know, the Telegraph thing pretty much every day. Um, and if you don't listen to it, you really should. It's just called Ukraine, the latest. Um, it's a London, put up by the London Telegraph and they do a great job. And, um, but, you know, I think about this, I've had a bad year. I had problems. Um, I've been sick a bunch of times. Um, my mom died. I spent, I'm still spending an enormous amount of my time dealing with really annoying bureaucratic crap with state stuff. You know, um, I've had other family trials and tribulations and a whole bunch of stuff, right? So it's not been a great year for me. I have lots of hassles. Um, still can't talk about some of them. And, um, and then you think about what the average Ukrainian still in that country goes through. Never mind, you know, the grandmothers who have no ability to provide for themselves watching their, you know, sons or grandsons get shot in the back of the head. Um, never mind, you know, the, you know, the people who, um, We'll never know what mass grave uh, their loved ones are in. Never mind the people who are in the mass graves who will um, never again walk upon this earth, right? You have people trying to figure out how to survive the night because they have no heat because Putin and the Russians are targeting civilian infrastructure to immiserate an entire country to allow, to force that country to countenance either total, um, a total invasion or uh, the um, annexation of vast swaths of their territory that they are they are trying to seize um, 
with indiscriminate artillery fire and bombing and uh, the use of, of, of rape and torture as a, as a military weapon. And you think about, you know, the kind of stuff that we are told by the Marjorie Taylor Greens of this country to be um, livid and outraged and, and unforgiving about. And then you think about what Ukrainians are going through. And um, the idea that somehow you're just going to give all of that a pass and ignore it and, and, you know, refuse to bear witness in the most costless ways possible, right? I mean, I, all I'm talking about is just acknowledging the truth, acknowledging the moral truth of this conflict. And because Zelensky didn't cooperate with Trump's nonsense um, that led to Trump's first impeachment because a bunch of people um, have convinced themselves that Putin is a real man um, and have been ensorcelled by the sort of the same sort of, you know, garbage talking points that have, have, have completely incepted themselves in the minds of people like Tucker and Glenn Greenwald and that crowd. Um, they're literally trying to foment a lie. Now, again, you can disagree with the policy. I have my criticisms of Biden's policy. Um, um, I think we should have given them Patriot missiles a long time ago. I think we should have figured out a way to let the polls give them those MIGs. Um, you know, but you can also think that we've given them too much. Those are all reasonable arguments to make. But the deliberate effort to make it sound like Ukraine isn't the, the, the victim here, that Ukraine in any way deserves this, that Putin in any way um, has, a, has, has a good reason to do any of this. It's just so gross. And if you, you know, I, I, I could barely stomach watching three minutes of, of Tucker after Zelensky's speech the other night, you know, and he just, he just, his, his utter deceitful contempt um, and distortion of the facts um, uh, was, was gro just grotesque and you see it all over the place and um, it can, you know, it's despair. It's, it, it can cause despair anyway. Um, uh, on the Ukraine stuff, I do think, you know, Biden made one point that I think was maybe the best defense of his policy that I have heard from the administration. Um, in a meeting between Biden and Zelensky, uh, somebody asked, um, you know, why aren't you giving more? Why aren't you giving everything that they need to win? You say, the, you say X, Y, and Z, and yet you're only giving this and that and not the other thing. And Zelensky, kind of half, two-thirds, not joking, but sounding like he was joking, said, I agree. Um, and then Biden said, look, we're trying to keep the alliance together, the NATO alliance together. And if we were to actually give what, what like the heritage crowd and these people call a blank, or Kevin McCarthy calls a blank check um, to Ukraine, which we're not giving them a blank check. I mean, for, anyway, um, if, you know, but if we were going to give them, if we give them everything in the, under the sun to defeat, to fight Russia, um, that could tear apart NATO. And I think that's, I don't think that settles the question, but that's actually a very good argument, right? If, if Biden is saying that, that France and I don't know, Germany, um, simply cannot go along with giving F-16s or, 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 a full complement of, of Patriot uh, systems or whatever it is. Um, and that it, it would really split the, the NATO alliance. Well, that's something that the president of the United States has to take seriously, right? That's not something that he can just say, shrug his shoulders and say, screw it. Let's do it anyway. Um, there's going to be some fantastic reporting about, you know, the behind the scenes rationale and thinking about all of this kind of stuff um, when this is all over. But I personally think it is in our interest to see Putin lose. 
um, not just Ukraine not lose. And let's talk for a second about Russia. If you, there's this woman, Julia Davis, I think is her name, and she sort of runs, posts clips and runs clips of uh, Russian media with translations, and it's pretty useful, and it's also pretty horrifying. Um, Russia really, I have no doubt, you know, it's funny, I just came back from Istanbul, and when, you know, when you live in the world of headlines and whatnot, you tend to anthropomorphize and generalize countries into, you know, unitary, um, undifferentiated pieces, right? And so Turkey is like this kind of country and Russia is that kind of country. And then you actually go to one of these countries, you know, and I've traveled a good bit. Um, and, you know, there's enormous diversity, heterogeneity and dissent within these countries. I mean, um, I'm not saying I was, uh, I wasn't doing a deep reporting tour, but I was in a bunch of different kinds of places in, in, in Istanbul from like uh, high end shopping malls that looked like they could be in the ritzier parts of DC or Chicago or LA, um, to pretty poor neighborhoods that we were just sort of walking around in and talked to a bunch of people. I don't, I don't want to be like Tom Friedman and say that, you know, my conversations with cab drivers were dispositive of, of various geostrategic issues, but, um, you know, these are, these are big serious old countries that have, um, a lot of internal diversity and disagreement within them. There's a lot more subtlety and nuance in all this. So I have no doubt that there are any number of committed, sincere, decent, um, peace-loving Russians who for justifiable or at the very least very understandable reasons aren't speaking out because, you know, uh, they don't want to be suicided. Uh, they don't want to lose their jobs. They don't want, you know, the repercussions for their families that might come with all that. I get all that. Right? So, and I get there are probably, there's, you know, there's, diversity of opinion by region, by ethnicity and all that kind of thing, you know, in part because these mobilizations of manpower uh, affect ethnic minorities harder in Russia than they do um, Russians uh, in St. Petersburg and, and, and Moscow, but so stipulated and stipulated. I'm being wildly over generalizing here, but man is Russia turning into a crappy country, right? I mean, uh, it's sort of like, you know, my, my, my old boss, Ben Wanberg was the first guy to say this about, um, or to, to make this point to me about plat, uh, party platforms, you know, party platforms are not particularly binding. Um, they don't really matter. They're, they're sort of consensus documents, or at least they used to be right. Where you are placating different constituencies and activist groups within the party sending these signals, throwing people bones, but like they almost have no bind. They literally have no binding power over, you know, delegates, you know, representatives in Congress or in the president or anything like that. And, you know, and Ben who had helped write some convention, you know, um, platforms in the past said, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's largely all true. But at the end of the day, these things matter because, this is what the party wants people to be, wants the world to believe that they believe, right? This is the stuff that the Republican party wants everyone outside of the Republican party and inside the Republican party to think is what the Republican party believes. And that's significant, even if it's just a glorified press release. Right. And I think about that in terms of Russia, the stuff that Russia wants the world to believe it believes is grotesque. It's disgusting. Um, I remember, you know, I, I have, I wrote two thirds of a column and then had to scrap it because I was dealing with my mom in hospice. But, um, uh, when, you know, there's that Russia today talk show host who was interviewing some sci-fi writer who, um, 
was telling some story about how when he was a kid in the 80s, he went to Ukraine and he would meet Ukrainian kids who would say that, you know, Ukraine wasn't really part of Russia and it was, it was annexed by Russia or occupied by Russia and that Ukraine was its own country, something like that, right? And this is, this is a guy reminiscing about his childhood in the 80s talking to Ukrainian kids that he visited when he was like 12 years old. And this host says, um, well, you know what you should have done with those kids is you should have drowned them in the river. Um, and that's what we should do to any kid who talks like that is they should be drowned in the river or we can, we can round them all up and put them in a house and then set it on fire. Right. And, uh, this guy, you know, when you, when you are a mouthpiece for state propaganda television speaking, um, uh, in defense of the state's policies for the purpose of speaking in defense of the state's policies and you say stuff like that. That's the Russian government, right? That is what Russia wants the world. Those are the kinds of people Putin wants speaking for Russia. And similarly, like the other day, this Julia Davis person posted, I think it was her, uh, posted this new video from some Russian singer, which is just a, um, it's a love song, you know, with clips of like military band playing, um, to this hypersonic interballistic missile that, um, you know, that, that will rain down on Ukrainian silly, cities, killing civilians. And it is so, it is almost Simpsons like, or like starship troopers, you know, propaganda click here. If you want to learn more, um, kind of over the top grotesquerie. Um, and this is, this is the image that Russia wants the I, I, the official Russia, right? The Russian state wants the world to identify as Russian culture, Russian sentiment, Russian morality. And, um, you know, if you go and you just simply read the stories of the atrocities being committed in Ukraine and if, even if you want to be skeptical and discount some of them, you know, because fog of war and it's a friendly Western media and all this kind of stuff, you can be very skeptical and still read these things. Um, and it's still very hard uh, to not conclude that Russia is doing something profoundly evil when you see pictures of a whole lot of people with their hands tied behind their backs um, with bullet holes in the backs of their heads. Um, or when you read the, uh, or listen to, uh, the intercepted communications of Russian soldiers talking about all of the rape, um, and torture. Um, and, and when the Russian Duma introduces legislation saying nothing like that under any circumstances can be prosecuted, um, or be declared criminal in any way, um, that's Russia the official, you know, legislative body of Russia, the Russian state, essentially saying, yeah, this is who we are. And, um, you know, I don't like talking, first of all, I don't like anthropomorphizing whole countries and treating them like they're individual humans. They're not. I don't like reducing countries to the strong men who rule them. Um, but, you know, at, at the level of broad generalization, Russia is a really crappy country right now. Rich, interesting, tragic history. Yeah. Lots of, you know, uh, lots of big wins in the cultural and scientific, um, you know, score, you know, scorecards over the last 150 years, you know, lots of great literature, great space program in its time, all that kind of stuff. Great. Fine. Rah, rah, rah. But at the level of identity and cultural formation, Russia is becoming a very evil place. Um, and, or at least it is giving people good reason to think that it is evil. Um, and uh, I think that's tragic because I don't think, you know, the average Russian is evil um, or anything like that. But the, the project that Putin has been on for the last 25 years in terms of um, redefining what it means to be Russia 
um, redefining Russia's own history as uh, a case study in how you can impose um, a kind of mass distortion effect that leads lots of otherwise normal people to think horrible things are just normal or fine. And I don't think it's going to end well. Um, and that's why I think there are real risks to pursuing a policy of total victory for Ukraine. Um, and I don't want to downplay them, but I think it is in our interest to see Putin gone and, um, and to see and to aid whatever forces we can without risking, you know, a third world war, um, without overly risking a third world war, um, do whatever we can um, to lend and aid and support, even if it's just rhetorical to the people within Russia who want it to be a better, more normal country, um, a decent country. And because uh, it's not one now. Uh, so I wrote an LA times column. It didn't it really, I, I, it's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast now is like, I, I live in perpetual fear of being rusty of, of, you know, of writer's block. You know, I've talked about this a million times. I, my own version of what writer's block is, is fear of writer's block, um, paralyzing fear of writer's block. And that's, um, and that's why I hate taking time off even for things I really want to do um, because I'm, I'm afraid that like if I don't, it's like, you know, like maintaining your flight hours, you know, when you're a pilot, I'm afraid that I won't be able to get back in the groove if I stop. But I didn't write it all while I was gone. And so the LA Times column was a little bit like pulling teeth. Um, but I think, you know, the point I was trying to make is a good one. Um, this was a pretty bad year for authoritarian regimes. I talked a little bit about this on the Dispatch podcast yesterday. Um, because, you know, the, the, the only way authoritarianism seems attractive is when it seems successful. And... Um, I shouldn't, uh, let me put it another way. The only way authoritarianism seems attractive um, to normal people is when it seems successful. Um, authoritarianism is always attractive to people who want to be the authoritarians, which is why I have such, you know, um, skepticism and misgivings about so much of the sort of of the post-liberal um, or Orban-loving stuff is that because most of the intellectuals who are into all of that, they don't foresee themselves, you know, doing the Benedict option and retreating from politics. They see themselves as the vanguard of this, this new order. And, um, you know... I just have a, you know, a much greater sense of, of, of distrust of any movement that says they're going to take away my liberty or our liberty. Um, but don't worry, it'll be fine because they'll be the ones in charge. If you want to be the one in charge, that is an argument for increased scrutiny and skepticism of your ideas because just as a matter of common sense, if, you're if your argument really is put me in charge and put people like me in charge or put my team in charge, um, odds are that you are just coming up with some sort of pretextual rationale, some sort of permission structure um, to be the boss and to boss people around. Um, I'd have, I have much more respect for people who try to propose systems that they will not benefit from or that they don't think that they will benefit from. And those are very, very rare. And that's one of the great things about liberalism, classical liberalism, is that it is a system that um, doesn't have a conception of, of who the winner will be in various contexts of power, right? Um, 
there's nothing inherent to the rules of monopoly, right? That say uh, women will win the game or Catholics will win the game or Todd will win the game. Um, the rules are the same for everybody and how you do at the game will determine whether you're the winner or not. Similarly, you know, and so, yeah, there is this idea within liberalism of the people who, that the people who are most committed to doing the due diligence and doing their homework, you know, i.e. merit, um, will come out okay. Um, But that's fine with me, right? Because that's open to everybody. But any system that purports to have rules where the winner um, or the chief beneficiaries fit some category that the people proposing those rules also fit, you just got to be, you know, uh, more skeptical about it. All right. So but anyway, so, so back to the authoritarians, right? Um, the authoritarian, uh, authoritarian countries, Russia, China, Iran, Iran, they had bad years because they just don't look like, you know, best in class models of good governance, right? Like, like as much contempt and disdain as I had uh, for Tom Friedman's article, you know, our, our arguments about China in the early 2000s, which I really did think were grotesque and I have written a lot about. Um, I think that, you know, he, you can at least understand some of it because it, it did seem like China had figured out a way to pursue optimal policies um, um, you know, while not being democratic and all that, which is like a non-starter for me, but you get the point, right? It felt a little bit like Lee Kuan Yew on a, on a mass scale, right? And there's, there's always a better argument for kind of technocratic strongmen for small sort of city states or island states. Uh, you know, this is sort of the point I bring up often about how, you know, even Rousseau thought, you know, the, the, the ideal social contract society couldn't be bigger than Geneva. Um, you know, it, when you're, when you're small and homogeneous, you can, you can do some more heavy handed public policy stuff. Um, if it's aimed at optimal policies and not at sort of personal enrichment and it can kind of work. And I think a lot of people were convinced that that's what China was doing. And I think there was good evidence that, um, there was plausible evidence that, you know, China was doing a lot of that kind of thing. And so I can understand why Tom Friedman would write those idiotic things like China for, wouldn't it be great if we could be China for a day and all that kind of stuff, because there was this sense in which the Chinese communist party really was acting like a technocratic steward for the best interests of the people um, and not a self-serving body. But you can believe that it was entirely the case 15, 20 years ago. Um, it doesn't change the fact that it is almost always inevitable that institutions with unchecked power eventually will become self-serving and um, self-aggrandizing. And I actually write about this quite a bit in Suicide of the West. You know, my thing about corruption being... Um, giving into human nature um, and how, you know, you, you fight our conception of corruption is just sort of graft and bribery is a very small piece of what real corruption is. Corruption is um, entropy, the, uh, you know, the second law of thermodynamics, that kind of thing that says ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Um, corruption, it means decay, putrefaction, um, that kind of stuff. And, and in the sense of, and, or the, you know, of nature reclaiming what is hers. And that goes for at least metaphorically for human nature. It is human nature to want to um, maximize benefits for yourself, your family, your kin, and your allies, right? Uh, if you read Fukuyama's fantastic two-part book about, um, gosh, what is it? Uh, Origins of the State. Um, I think I'm mangling the title, but 
There's never been a society anywhere in the world at any time now or in the past where human beings didn't show preferences to uh, friends and family. It's just natural for human beings. You cut um, slack for friends and family. That's just it's the nature of the beast. It's what human beings do. And modern rule of law societies limit your ability to do that, right? Limit your ability to do, you know, uh, to take people, take resources and award them to your, to your gang, your, your friends, your family, whatever, for illegitimate purposes. So unless you have a really strong esprit de corps and charismatic leadership um, for some technocratic kind of organization, eventually it is going to give in to that coalition instinct, that sort of, we deserve that, that sense of, of self-serving aristocracy. And this has been the case um, throughout human history. Uh, you know, the Catholic church creates all of these rules um, to deal with nepotism, which originally meant nephewism. Um, that's what the nep and nepotism comes from, nepotismo or something like that. And it's, uh, the nephewism wasn't actually just about nephews. It was about, you know, uh, you know, cardinals and bishops having mistresses and, and kids with those mistresses, calling them their nephews and then giving them powerful positions. Um, and so they created, you know, all sorts of rules to deal with those kinds of prop problems because what would happen is, is that you would have um, officers of the church, whatever the correct phrase is, you know, priests and stuff, treating church property as if it was their own, which is the same thing as treating state property as if it's your own. It's the same concept, right? In China, they created the bureaucracy, often staffed with eunuchs. The, the, I mean, the eunuch thing was used by a lot of different societies as a way to get around this problem of people doing what was best for their families. Um, you know, the, the Turks or the Ottomans, um, they created the Janissaries, which were essentially a slave class um, of Christian kids taken from their families as sort of military tribute, um, largely from the Balkans and other areas like that. Um, it's one of the reasons why the word slave derives from Slav um, or Slav derives from slave. And they would make them, so the, the whole idea was you take these kids, they're orphans, right? You raise them as, as wards of the state. They have no family allegiance whatsoever and you channel their family their their instinct for family allegiance or tribal allegiance towards the the sultan, and that makes them extremely effective and difficult to um, corrupt um, in the sense of like being appealed to by their clan or their family um, and that kind of thing. And that worked for a very long time, but eventually the Janissaries, like the Praetorians and every other institution, they became self serving. And I think the Chinese communist party is now in that phase or at least it's in the phase where it is obvious that that's what it's doing and it is losing credibility with the Chinese people. And you add in the fact that the, the protests against COVID were so profound that they actually scared the country into reverse course. It just doesn't make China seem like the kind of country a lot of people want to live in. If you're a middle-class bourgeois person or someone who's aspiring to be a middle-class bourgeois person, you don't look in China and says out and say, I want to get a piece of that. Um, at least not as your first choice necessarily. And I'm sure the reality on the ground is much more nuanced and complicated and, and all of that kind of thing. But you get my point is that, you know, examples of the school of mankind and he will learn it no other. And um, when authoritarian regimes start to look self-serving and uh, incompetent, uh, you know, what's the reason to, to, to sort of hitch yourself to that model um, um, if it's not going to have the benefits that everyone um, say come, you know, believe that come with authoritarianism. Similarly, Russia, you know, the interesting thing about Russia to me, uh, look, no one thinks that Russia is a best model of anything. Well, that's not true. There are a lot of idiots on Twitter who seem to think it. There are a bunch of idiots on the sort of crazy alt-right crowd that think it. But those are people who are essentially just jealous of authoritarian power and unapologetic cruelty. 
But like, I don't think there are many normal people look at Russia and say, yeah, that's, that's the kind of place I want to be. Same thing with Iran. But the interesting thing, the great thing, one, one of the silver linings, because there's nothing great about the invasion of Ukraine, but one of the great silver linings about all of it is how much it shows that authoritarianism sounds great in principle to a certain crowd that just wants the best policies, right? This, this, this sort of old Tom Friedman argument about you just, you know, the democracy and dissent and deliberation, these things get in the way of optimal policies, right? That there's no time for argument anymore. We know what to do. We just have a clunky, inefficient system that won't let us do it. Um, and if we could only be like the Chinese for a day to impose our best policies, everything would be great. Um, and it turns out it just, that kind of system doesn't work. At least it doesn't work for long. Um, the internal, the nature of authoritarianism is to pile up um, lies, inefficiencies, graft, corruption, um, over and over and over again. It fills the corners where the, the leader cannot see. Um, and that's because no one will tell the leader um, what he doesn't want to hear, and there are no independent institutions um, or organizations that are allowed to broadcast, um, not necessarily in the TV sense of the word, but I just mean they're, they're not allowed to announce, declare, make public failures of the system. And so the failures don't get corrected and the failures accumulate. And then the failures reach a point where they are so bad, no one dares bring them up for fear of, of having, uh, of, of, getting the blame for it or even just being, you know, the messenger who gets shot for being the messenger. People need to be reminded again and again and again that for all of the problems of liberal democratic capitalism, liberal democratic capitalism is, I, mean, I really don't like uh, uh, Nassim Taleb. I think he's a brilliant guy. I just, he's, I, I don't like quoting him much because every time I listen to him, he can be such a jerk and it's really weird. And he has attacked me for totally random, stupid reasons. Um, but he is a brilliant guy and his, this concept of anti-fragility is really a really good one. Um, you know, the authoritarianism is, is like marble. It's, it's really strong, but it's also really brittle. It's not supple. It cannot deal with shocks to the system. Well, it cannot deal with problems and little cracks, um, are hard to fix and can turn into big fissures very quickly. And liberal democratic capitalism, it's, it's messy, but it's like, you know, the big tall oak is much stronger than all those fields of grass. But when the big storm comes through, the oak gets snapped in two and the grass just gets blown flat and then comes back up. Liberal democratic capitalism is just, it's honeycombed with all of these checks and balances. We know about the ones in the constitution, right? You know, the judiciary oversees the legislative and the executive, the executive contest for power with the legislature and yada, yada, yada. We know all that stuff, right? It's also, we know all the federalism stuff with the different state governments and they're all broken up into divided government and checks and balances and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. And that's important. And that's a big part of the benefits of our system. But we also have journalism. We have, it's not as good as it used to be and it's not as good as it could be or should be. But, you know, we have all sorts of institutions that have a vested interest in saying, ha ha, every time, like Nelson from the Simpsons, every time a government official screws up, that creates an incentive for government officials not to screw up. We've got courts that, um, and the rule of law that, uh, and plaintiff's lawyers and, and, and litigious people that are constantly looking for signs of negligence or malfeasance or whatever, so they can make a buck or that they can, um, you know, get on the news. Um, and then there's just simply the market. The market loves to punish screw ups as much as it loves to reward success. And, um, and this is scalable. It's, 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 it's horizontal. It's vertical. Um, it's everything that those aliens do in the beginning of the outer limits. And, um, and that just makes, it doesn't mean that our system doesn't screw up from time to time. Obviously it does, but it is just much more difficult for horrible problems and corruptions and lies to sit around that long. Our biggest screw ups are the things that everybody knows exist, but don't have the courage to do anything about like debt. Um, 
but you know, no one, no one can say um, they weren't told about you know the debt time bomb or the deficit time bomb or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but in Russia, you know, people told Putin a story about how you know great the military was, how ready to go it was, how corrupt the Ukrainians were. Um, people forget Putin is not a military guy, and he put other sort of intelligence state security people at the top of all these military institutions and their imperative wasn't military preparedness or military excellence. It was loyalty to the, to, to Putin and loyalty to his lies. And that made, that is at the heart of these screw ups. So if you haven't read that New York times piece going through how Putin got into this mess, I really recommend it because one of the things that screams out from it is just this, how, authoritarian systems are are built to create these kinds of problems for itself um that the unknown unknowns and the the, the unknowns un, the unknown unknowns that should be known and knowable but aren't um pile up because the standards for um political decisions and policy decisions aren't clear and open and on the merits, they're all about intrigue and, and, and corruption. And, um, and so I think that like this, this is a good, you know, this is one, one of the good things about the, the, the whole year is that everyone who's been talking about how great authoritarianism is in some sort of abstract, you know, theory, uh, when you actually see it applied around the world, it just doesn't look that great. And I think that is the, you know, that is the best marketing for the system that we have is just to point out that the alternatives really, really suck um, and lead to terrible things like what we're seeing in Iran and, and Ukraine and in and, and China, which is going to have a really, really bad winter. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's about enough. Um, I, uh, um, super grateful to all the wonderful feedback I've been getting from folks and the sort of, um, uh, don't worry about it attitude about being gone for vacation was, was very nice to hear lots of big things happening, uh, for the dispatch in 2023. Um, and the most important thing is that we hold on to the audience that we have and that we build it the way we've been building it. Um, and I'm so grateful to all of you who are members of the dispatch who support us. We're going to do more meetups in 2023. Although I guess I'm going to talk to you before the end of 2022. So I don't need to get all into that. Um, maybe we'll do a year in review type thing. And uh, so that's all I got. And um, everybody have a really wonderful Christmas. Um, and we're continue having a wonderful Hanukkah. And um, I'll talk to you next time. 